All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the MediaGel podcast. My name is Guillermo Bravo. I'm the chief evangelist here at MediaGel. At MediaGel, we're focused on connecting cannabis, CBD, and alcohol brands to compliant consumer audiences at every stage of the customer journey. I'd like to introduce to you Jacob Lickey, the CEO of MediaGel. Welcome to the show, Jake. Thank you, sir. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Fantastic. Where are you dialing in from today? I am in sunny Walnut Creek, California today near San Francisco. Nice, nice. Enjoying the, uh, enjoying the weather out there. I'm sure some of the, some of our audience from the New England and, and Midwest is uh, experienced a little harder, a little, a little rougher uh, weather. Yeah. <laughs> right now. Well, let's give a few moments for everyone to join here and um, you know, I guess we can kick it off with a, a little bit of insight into your background and, and what inspired you to create MediaGel. Sure. So, you know, we started MediaGel about four years ago now, specifically to address a problem that we saw, which was that cannabis brands lacked access to uh, modern digital advertising tools, such mm-hmm. as retargeting, you know, uh, being able to do revenue attribution. And uh, they also lacked access to mainstream advertising inventory. You know, the cannabis industry still um, in many ways is sort of relegated to the kids table when it comes to advertising. Uh, and we've been on a mission to change that. So um, in addition to the technology that we've built, we've also formed partnerships uh, with uh, you know, major publishers on, on the mainstream uh, publisher side. So you know things like, as opposed to being able to only advertise in you know, Weed Maps or Leafly, which are you know, great advertising channels for Endemic, but we really want to allow the cannabis industry to advertise the same way that the CPG industry does. So, you know, getting ads on the Weather Channel and Rolling Stone and working with companies like Hearst and Condé Nast and Smart Ad Server is a huge partner for us. Um, our partnership with them allows us, uh, really gives us the largest um, set of inventory for cannabis approved advertising. So all of the publishers that we work with know that we're serving cannabis ads. They know we understand the rules. Um, and creative guidelines. And so we don't ever get campaign shut down because everything we're doing is completely above board. That's good to hear. I mean, it's, you know, providing that, uh, uh, that certainty um, in regards to the compliance, which is a, a key factor you need to do before we, we launch campaigns. Can you give me a little insight into just programmatic advertising as a whole? Sure. So program, it's interesting. People kind of use similar words Uh, I mean, the same thing, you know, programmatic advertising is really a methodology for buying, right? So that means that the impressions are being made available in an auction format, similar to the stock market, Um, you know, people bid on impressions. So that is the methodology that we use. Um, However, the actual advertising category is more accurately described as display advertising, right? And so display advertising itself has a bunch of different categories. Um, People are very used to seeing, you know, banner ads or native ads. Uh, video, but it also includes things like uh, digital out of home, connected TV, anything that is digital at this yeah. point, you know, we have access to, um, and it allows for a lot of upper funnel work, brand awareness, um, and then and building an audience that allows you to move people down through the funnel. Um, and we've built in the attribution part as well, right? So we can actually measure sales against your advertising activity, um, which helps get rid of a lot of the opaqueness that can happen in digital advertising where people spend money but they're not really sure what's happening yeah and that's you know one of the benefits of programmatic advertising right is uh you know the the ability to track uh the return on investment for for each marketing campaign you know what are some of the other benefits of programmatic advertising 
Well, it gives you the ability to be very precise in the audience you want to reach. So, you know, every day there's billions, if not maybe trillions of ad impressions that are available. Um, and so what we do is try to make sure that each one of those impressions, while the individual impressions are, you know, talking about pennies or fractions of a penny for each one, it mm -hmm. still does add up. And of that huge amount of uh, available impressions, you want to try to be as targeted as possible. So it allows us to do things like I mentioned earlier, create retargeting audiences based on people that have been to your site or purchased uh, in the past. Um, and then we create an audience that is comprised of those addressable identifiers. So like device IDs, first party cookies. And then when we see all of these impressions come through, we've got a filter, right? And that filter says, I only want to bid on these impressions that match the audience um, that I'm trying to reach. Got it, got it. So, the, so what would be an example of a way you can get your ads in front of the right audience? So we've got a whole bunch of tools um, and we use them for, for different things, but some, um, some real clear examples would be using geospatial data. Uh, we have a large amount of data that comes from people that have opted in to share their information. Um, you know, through tens of thousands of different applications. Um, so it is opt-in audiences, uh, but we can do things like draw polygons around all the dispensaries in a given market, create um, device IDs of, uh, create an audience of those device IDs, and then again, use those for targeting. So geospatial is one thing we can do. Retargeting off of your existing audience is another. We also have access to the complete array of audiences that exist in the general advertising ecosystem. And those are provided by you know, companies like IRI or Epsilon and, and these companies aggregate credit card information, right? So if you wanted to be very specific, let's say you are um, a cannabis beverage company and you want to do conquest targeting against, uh, let's say people that buy ciders, right? Because that, you've got a campaign around that. We do have the ability to build an audience that, that these are known purchasers of ciders and even down to specific brands. Um, and again, use those as targeting criteria. And we will break up campaigns into tactics. So each line item will have different tactics, right? We have the geospatial conquesting, we have purchase history, um, and we can measure the success of those audiences. And we can measure that in comparison with the creatives that you might be running, right? So maybe you've got a dozen different creatives, you've got six different audiences, and our ad ops team, you know, when we work with advertisers, we're a, a full service, uh, display campaign. So that means that we have, you know, customer success manager that works with the advertisers. We have an ad oper operations team that's looking at your campaign every day, seeing which publishers are giving you the best engagement. Um, and those publishers vary wildly geographically in terms of which ones are driving sales, right? So the same publishers in Michigan that are driving sales, um, you know, these are apps and websites are actually very different than the ones that are driving sales in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, you know, the, the performance uh, for ad just depends on on the market and uh, the types of media. Like where, you know, where can ads actually be displayed? Like what kind of devices and mediums? Yeah, at this point, it's it's everything, right? Okay. Um, we have access to you know even as far as connected TV. So um, when we start working with the new advertiser, uh, most of the time, uh, people aren't aware of what is possible today. So mm -hmm. um, you know we have tens of thousands of publishers um, across all those different mediums. So Connected TV is something we bring up. We don't see a lot of that happening today. Um, I think a byproduct or a reason for that rather is that people don't know that they can run a 30 second television ad. You can, and it is still, there are still limitations, right? So we aren't able to run ads on Hulu today, but we are able to run ads on like Sony Crackle and Tubi um, and some of the publishers that may not be 
attached to a publicly traded corporation that's a little more concerned about federal legislation. Got it. And, you know, as far as campaign examples, can you give me a, a few examples on different ways that we can target audiences? So, you know, we, you talked about conquest, conquest targeting. Uh, what is conquest targeting? You know, and what other, what other campaign types can we run? Yeah, so a conquest campaign is, is kind of what it sounds like, which is, you know, trying to capture customers either from your competition or okay. from maybe adjacent categories. I mentioned, you know, cannabis beverages are, are a pretty easy one to use as, a, as an example. Yeah. Um, but really, you could use any kind of category, right? You could, um, if it's, uh, it could be events, it could be people that go to specific types of stores, um, depending on, on what your product category is. And, you know, we've seen this evolved quite a bit recently where marketers are getting more sophisticated with their tactics and who they're trying to serve ads to as they better understand their audience um, and, and who's actually purchasing their products. Understood. And then what type of KPI should a, an advertiser be uh, measuring uh, to, to gauge the performance? Yeah. So it depends a little bit on the advertiser. I'll break okay. them into the two major buckets that exist today. You know, we have retailers okay. and delivery um, in one bucket, and then we've got brands in another. Um, and brands in our industry have had a difficult time measuring mm -hmm. uh, success because they're generally not connected to the purchase, right? There is some amount of D2C or direct consumer marketing that's happening for some brands, uh, but largely the sales are coming through the dispensary. Um, and that is a complicated ecosystem between the POS, the e-com platform, um, and, you know, sales that are happening in the store. So for most of our delivery and dispensary, advertisers, they're really at this point measuring things on sales, right? And, and that's why we built our attribution model. So we can, we can show the direct correlation between your advertising efforts and actual purchases that consumers are making. Now, there is a lot of value that we're building on the brand equity front. Um, and I do continue to believe that as things progress, the brands will, the brands that are successful in building a, a, a lot of brand equity in relationship with consumers Mm. will eventually win the game, right? You see this happening now, especially in California, where you've got the cost of flour has gone down so much, right? And, and there's so much availability of great product. It's, it's becoming more of a game of what is the brand, right? And can you build that relationship with the consumer? So I don't think that's being measured um, as well as it could be in terms of like brand lift um, by a lot of the uh, retailers. And I think that's a byproduct of just how difficult it is to be a retailer today. Um, most of the retailers are very, very focused on, you know, this week's, next week's sales, next month's sales. Um, but a byproduct of the successful advertising we're doing now is we are actually building a lot of brand equity for our advertisers. Um, so that's one KPI uh, to answer uh, it a little more fully. We do have um, advertisers that are looking to do signups, like, you know, uh, specifically first-time customers or people that want to build up their CRM list. So getting people to sign up for, you know, whatever newsletter uh, promotions they might have. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are some of the main KPIs. Okay. And then I'll, in, in addition to that, you know, the obviously top line revenue uh, for e-commerce sales, if you, if you're a retailer, uh, in-store foot traffic could be another one. Yeah, we, do measure, we do measure that as well, again, with the geospatial data that we have access to. So separate from measuring a specific sale, we also monitor the physical locations for the customers we have that are retailers. Um, and we can measure and see, you know, these are devices that we serve ads to. And then these are the, the devices that 
subsequently showed up within some sort of window. Usually it's a 30 day window of you know, when an ad was displayed and when a device walked into the store. And those are um, comparative to each other. They don't, you know, the, the someone walking into a store um, that we get from a device observation doesn't necessarily mean that they purchased something. Although the cannabis industry is unique in the ratio of people that walk into a store and purchase something, right? Yeah. Uh, definitely most people that walk into a dispensary uh, do buy something. Exactly. And you, and you touched on, you know, building brand equity and there's different tactics that you can, <clears throat> there's different ways you can leverage programmatic uh, to really showcase that uh, your message and your values. Like, you know, one great example I would say is native content ads. Can you give me an example of, of what a native ad is and how you can use it to build, um, mm -hmm. build your brand equity? Yeah, so a native ad unit is a ad unit that is formatted to look like it's part of the website that you're viewing. And, and the most common thing that people will recognize is if, you know, you go to CNN.com, there's a bunch of posts in there that, you know, are really a product advertisement, but it is formatted to look like it's on the site. And a native ad unit is actually a, a different type of thing to create because what you create is, you know, a lifestyle image. So not necessarily a product image, but a lifestyle image so that it fits in with sort of the editorial nature of where it's going and a headline and a body uh, copy. And, and those pieces are sent kind of as raw data and then it's up to the website to format those, right? And that's what you want, mm -hmm. the font and the sizing to look like it is native to the publication. Um, those types of ads tend to work best when you have a funnel on the, on the post-click side you know, once you've got someone to engage with the ad and they click on it, um, native ads are great for when you're sending someone to something that's kind of educational in nature or has more of a reading type of context. Mm -hmm. You've already got someone who's reading a piece of content and you bring them over in a, in a sort of linear fashion. And then you bring them to ideally something that's educational. Um, that's a huge thing in our industry. You know, we, the consumers need education, the brands need education. And so the native ads work really great for, for that type of, uh, campaign. Wonderful. And you touched a little bit on advertising on TV. Uh, are there any limitations in regards to, to, to advertising on television? And, you know, what's the difference between, uh, say streaming TV versus, as you said, uh, you know, something on CNN. Yeah, so um, on on video, you you've got a couple of different ways that goes. You can have um, something like a pre-roll video that might play inside of an application. Um, you know, a common uh, example of this is you know, like there's a video game or there's some piece of content they make you watch a video prior to getting the content, um, and that's usually a mobile or tablet first experience. Okay. Um, and in that type of experience, you have more of an opportunity for like a, some click-through behavior, right? To get someone to go somewhere. When you are advertising on a television, you know, the, the consumer is not touching a device. Now, commonly people will put like a QR code or something, but really when you're talking about in-home connected television advertising, that's more about brand awareness. Um, but the good news is, is you can, you can orchestrate that as part of your funnel. So you can start with, uh, running some connected TV ads and all of those uh, ad impressions that you serve can go into retargeting pool. So then you can give them more of a call to action or direct response follow-up campaign. Wonderful. And then are, are we able, you know, are you able to uh, connect with like gaming consoles and, and other devices like that as well? That does exist. Okay. I, you know, we haven't really done a lot of that. I think it's, it's, um, 
a little bit outside of, of what people are thinking about doing today. Um, and then the gaming consoles, again, are their own ecosystems. And you said, what are, are there limitations? And the answer is yes, there's limitations to everything, right? <laughs> so, you know, we say that, you know, we, we operate primarily in the U.S. We do work with some advertisers in Canada and Puerto Rico, where you are. Um, but it's really like operating in 38 different countries. Every state has its own rules. Um, now, when you're doing connected TV or OTT, you don't have to deal with the FCC, right? Which is great. Mm -hmm. you don't really want anything with the word federal in front of it when you're doing advertising. Um, but uh, every every state is very different, um, even down to how you get an ad approved. You know, we have generally master trust with our publishers. They know the ads that we're going to put on their sites are, are safe for them. Um, but you still have regulations, right? So there's specific states that have uh, like Minnesota and Pennsylvania. If you want to run a campaign in those states that's related to cannabis, you actually have to get each particular piece of creative approved by the the government in that state, yeah. which you know sometimes is quick and other times is not. Yeah, yeah, uh, we've we've run into that, you know, with um, <clears throat> Pennsylvania and some other states that require a lot of uh, manual review for actually ads to be published. Right, so just have to be patient on those. Uh, you know, as far as what differentiates MediaGel from other ad companies, can you go into to that a little bit? Sure. Um, so we as a company started off and have continued to be uh, a business that's trying to enable the cannabis industry as a whole, right? Okay. Um, and so uh, I think that is a, while it's not necessarily a technical differentiator, um, it does differentiate the way that we run our business and how we partner with our customers. We, we really do care about what's happening with our customers. We know that the struggle is real for them. And we also know that advertising dollars that they're spending are precious, right? I mean, if you talk about the implications of 280E, right? 280E, if you're operating as a retailer, um, you are a licensed cannabis business and you don't get to write off your advertising dollars the same way that other industries do. So we take, uh, we take it very serious when people make investments in advertising through us to make sure that they're getting a good ROI because we have a vested interest in, in our customers being successful. Yeah, agreed. And then, you know, can, can someone run a multiple programmatic ad campaigns with different companies together? You, you can, um, you need to be uh, very conscious about how you do that. And we, and we do that sometimes with some of our, our marketers because they have some other channels that they're running. You know, we, as a company, are, we're not like an agency of record. We're not trying to, be an agency and take over the whole marketing department for a company, we're trying to enable some specific channels. So um, it does come up where uh, maybe they've got an internal media buyer that's doing some specific things. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a few different ways that we can avoid conflict there because what we don't want to be doing is bidding against ourselves on behalf of the advertiser, right? Yeah. So um, when that comes up, we'll do things like silo um, publishers potentially or channels, mm -hmm. right? So maybe someone's running video already through something they have and they want to run native ads. Native ads and videos are not going to conflict with each other and they're not going to bid against each other. Um, so we can either do channel separation or we can do publisher separation. Sometimes someone has maybe a direct buy they've done um, with, you know, like the chive and they've done a direct buy there. So we'll just block out the chive and our ad buy so we make sure we're not competing against ourselves. Okay. And you mentioned agencies, like how, how does MediaGel collaborate with an agency to, to execute on the campaign? Sure. We work with quite a few agencies um, as, as channel partners. Uh, we've built our platform to be uh, set up as a white label solution when, when needed. 
So we have a strong direct business, but we also have a strong channel partner business. And we give our channel partners a version of our, our dashboard that is branded for them. You know, they're the ones that are um, selling into the advertiser and they're the ones that are managing the account. And most of the time, the advertiser doesn't, doesn't necessarily know who MediaGel is. You know, we don't need to be, um, we don't need them to know who we are. You know, so we, we do have two parts of our business, um, our direct business and then enabling other agencies that want to be able to offer this service, which is pretty complicated. We've spent years building a very large technology stack and we've made it pretty easy to use. And so we can help someone who may be offering, uh, you know, creative services or social media services. If they want to add in, you know, some programmatic buying, we can help them do that. Wonderful. And, you know, uh, Apple and other companies are talking a lot about third-party cookies is, you know, with all the changes occurring uh, in privacy, will that have an impact in programmatic in any way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There, there's a lot of impacts that are happening there. Um, it is a, a rapidly evolving landscape. Uh, okay. One of the things that we did uh, early on, because we were, we had the same issues that most people had in the cannabis space, which they were blocked from being able to buy ads through you know, there's basically, there's kind of two parts of the auction. You have the demand side and the supply side. And mm-hmm. we represent the demand side. We are, we are buying inventory. Um, most of the demand side platforms don't take cannabis at all, right? So that's kind of why we built our own technology. Um, but part of the, doing that is we, we kind of just went around and connected directly on the supply, right? And that is kind of, that's our partnership with Smart helped us do that. And because we are buying at the sell side level, yeah. Um, bypassing the demand side level, we, we get rid of a lot of barriers. But a side effect of that, that maybe we didn't entirely plan for, but turns out to be a good benefit, is that we're sitting directly on the supply side. So there's, you know, the difference between a third party cookie and a first party cookie today makes all the difference in the world, right? Because our, our, our connection and our signals that we're getting aren't going through a demand platform, through the exchange, the, whatever number of intermediaries that might be tacking on fees. Um, and getting to the supply side, because we still on the supply side, a lot of the issues that are happening on third-party cookies are not affecting us. Oh, well, that's a relief, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. It, was uh, a, it came out of necessity, but it turned out to be a, a pretty good advantage for us. Yeah, yeah. As far as leveraging programmatic in combination with search engines, right? Google Google's responsible for 93% plus of all search traffic online in, in the United States. Uh, you know, what's, what's an example on how we can, we can pair the two strategies uh, to support each other. Sure. Um, you know, and that's, that's part of why we, we came together with, with your team, right? Because yeah. historically you had been working in the, in the paid search and the SEO arena, and we had been working on the, strictly on the paid media side, but mm-hmm. we noticed over time that most of the last click activity is coming from search behavior. Right. Yeah. We're, we're running ads and we're doing brand awareness and we're showing people your brand in the market and whatever offers you might have. But ultimately, most people are not going to interrupt their reading or video viewing experience or gaming to like go place an order right away. Right. But yeah. they see an offer. They're like, oh, there's 30 percent off here. Or buy one, get one for a penny or whatever it is. They're usually not clicking right through and making a purchase. But we because we have our multi-touch attribution model, we, we could see that people were coming in. They were, they were getting impressions. And then some number of days, usually three to six days after that, they're going to making a purchase. And then we kind of went backwards and said, okay, why are they making that purchase? Because we could see the purchase. And we, you know, we can look at the site behavior. We can see that people are coming in through organic or paid search, right? So what we want is when someone 
goes and connects, you know, goes on Google and says cannabis delivery near me. We want the, you know, the brands that we're working with, they're going to show up in, in that first set of fields, or we'll do a, a paid ad. We can do paid search um, on Google very, very carefully, but we can do that. Um, and so you've either got a paid ad or got an organic ad showing up. And, and that really is the middle of the buyer's journey. Okay. And can you give me an example of, you know, uh, a campaign that we'd run and where the customer would see us along that cust on, on that, uh, buyer's journey. Uh, so, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm shopping for, uh, you know, absolute extracts in San Francisco. Where might I see, you know, examples of these ads walking around town on my phone? Like where would I? Yeah. So it's the bulk of it. I, I mentioned we do work in like digital out of home and we've even got ads we can run in you know, the back of Ubers and stuff, but the bulk of it is still going to happen where people are, right. Where they're spending yeah. their attention. And that is primarily going to be on mobile. Um, and then, and then some amount of desktop. And so it is, like I said, there's tens of thousands of apps. So depending on where you are and what you're doing, um, you could see an ad happening, as I mentioned, you know, in a game on the news, checking the weather, um, all of those different places. And, and we do, um, you know, with retargeting, we do tend to follow people around. I mean, everyone, everyone is used to this. You go and search for like red sneakers and Amazon, you're going to see ads for red sneakers. Um, we're doing the same exact thing for cannabis. Um, you know, people have different opinions on whether that's annoying or invasive, but uh, it's certainly very effective and, and common. Yeah, right. I mean, marketing rule of seven, you need to, to stay top of mind and people need to see your brand at least seven times before they'll make a purchase decision. Right? Yeah, seven, 10, 12, 20, everyone has different numbers, but yeah. it is true, you know, you see, um, you do need to see a brand a certain number of times before you start to give it credibility uh, in, in your mind. Yeah, and you touched on multi-touch attribution model. Um, what does that mean? And, and uh, you know, what technology does MediaGel have in place uh, that's different from the others in the industry? Yeah, so we have, and this is an important thing because a lot of times when we start a conversation with someone, they want to talk about lookalike audiences because they're used to Facebook. And, and the way that we operate is, is basically the opposite of what Facebook is doing, right? So yeah. we are very PII compliant, personally identifiable information. We okay. don't store that anywhere. We don't have anyone's name. We don't know who people are, right? So we, we don't do lookalike audiences. What we track are devices, Okay. Um, phones and tablets and, and desktops, how they behave offline and online. And so what we can do is we, we understand when, when an impression is served, it sends a signal into our, our collector, and then we can match that against our audience graph, which again is there's no personal information in there. There's anonymized identifiers. Um, but what that allows us to do is understand that we served an ad to someone uh, or a couple ads on their phone, uh, you know, last week, and then this week, they went on their desktop and, and made a purchase. But because there's signals in there that you can tie together, that's the multi-touch part, right? Where we know that we can serve someone an ad across multiple properties, across multiple devices, and still maintain that signal strength in an anonymized way and say this purchase had this behavior that led up to that purchase. Understood. And I want to take a little break here at the halfway mark and uh, you know, reach out to our audience. Uh, you know, if if you'd like to ask a question, if you go down to the bottom here, you can, you can see the Q&A functionality of Zoom and you can ask us any questions that you have for Jake. Um, Jake's gonna start taking uh, questions from the audience. So feel free to post your questions there and we'll start to, to answer those shortly. 
uh, you know, Jake, as far as the the evolution of programmatic advertising, like where do you see this technology going in the future? In the, uh, the whole programmatic, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, you touched on some of the things that's happening in terms of identification, you know, cookie list identifiers. Yeah. There are a number of solutions uh, in the market today, uh, and, and but it changes from week to week. Like even yeah. a few months ago, Google said they were adopting Flock, which was this idea of creating cohorts. Uh, but then someone realized that that wasn't as privacy compliant as they thought it was. Um, now they have topics. Uh, so it, it is always going to be changing. Uh, we try to uh, handle those changes on behalf of our customers so that they don't have to worry about those things, right? Um, and, and there's also legislation that happens in individual states, right? So like California has CCPA, right? Um, which is different than GDPR. Um, and every time one of these new laws comes out, we, we make the necessary adjustments, right? So, um, you know, we have our collector, but we have the ability to, you know, we all have all the do not track forms. You can go in, you can put in your name or email or whatnot and say, do not track me. You know, we take in um, all those signals daily and then scrub that information, you know, from our identity graph. Wonderful. And then one, uh, one thing I'm curious about is like, if I had a, you know, if I have an application, you know, uh, Apple approved um, cannabis as far as uh, allowing orders through through mobile apps. Like, what type of campaign could I leverage uh, through programmatic to encourage people to install my mobile app? Yeah, so you can come up with a few different tactics to do that. Um, okay. I mean, the first one is going to be leveraging your existing information that you have. So, if you are a delivery or dispensary and you have most of them, because of the nature of regulations, have identities on their customers. They have an email address or a phone number. We can onboard that information again in a privacy-compliant way. That you know, you take the email addresses, they go through a hashing algorithm, um, which makes them anonymized. Uh, but that that hashed version is now that functions within our identity graph. So we can take you know hashed email address and we can turn that into an addressable identifier, like a device ID, right? Um, and then we can run a campaign. And, and we can run a campaign for uh, people that you know are your customers. We can mm -hmm. take the stuff I mentioned earlier in terms of other cannabis consumers in that market. We can make that uh, a targeted audience as well. Um, and then you would probably want to run that ad in all app inventory, right? Because you've got someone who's in an app right now. Yeah. And the click through, you take them, you know, right to the app store uh, where it's, the app is there to download. Wonderful, wonderful. And Steve Nolan has a question here. You know, what is your experience using programmatic working with a new brand versus an established brand? Uh, yeah, and how, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, um, and it, it comes up quite a bit. You know, a lot of the brands of cannabis are new, and you know there is there is an amount of brand awareness work that needs to happen for a new brand in order for people to make purchases. If you have, you know, you just started Acme Cannabis and you open your doors and you start running ads, it is, you're not going to get immediate traction. And this is, this is a thing that we, we have to educate people about because, uh, again, people are, are used to doing Instagram and Facebook ads, which is a very specific direct response channel. Um, you do have to build, the marketing funnel exists in cannabis as well, right? So you have your upper funnel, brand awareness, you have your middle funnel, which is engagement, and then you have your lower funnel conversion. If you don't put anything in the top of your funnel, you cannot take action at the bottom of your funnel. Um, I would say with cannabis brands like retailers um, and product manufacturers, it's a little bit easier. When you start to talk about the CBD space, the challenges are greater. 
Um, the CBD space as a whole is crowded um, and there's a lot of not necessarily great messaging going on in that space. So you have to overcome um, consumer trust and you, but you have to build your brand as well. Um, there's a lot of great products out there that are bootstrapped, right? And they're like, okay, I have a great product. I yeah. want to get it out there and then I want to run a, a campaign, but it's not, it's not a, it's not like you can't skip go, skip go, right? You do have to do the work around brand awareness. So if you just start a new product and start running programmatic ads, that's not going to translate to sales immediately. Got it. And then a follow-up question would be, how do you establish uh, KPIs for these new brands? Yeah. So um, most people come in the door with one KPI, which is selling things. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the important end goal, but we kind of have to frequently back up a little bit and say, okay, who are you trying to advertise to? Um, and again, we'll sometimes get the answer of uh, everyone, right? Well, that's, that's also not a good answer because you, you, it's just not going to be effective. You do need to have some idea of who you're trying to reach. Um, and you really need to have an a entire marketing strategy. You know, the, the programmatic or even paid search is a tool inside of a marketing strategy. If you don't have like a campaign message or a mm -hmm. value proposition that you've been able to define that mm -hmm. we can communicate to the consumer, um, we, we frequently when we meet with new advertisers, tell them that they're not actually ready to do programmatic advertising um, and, and, and give them some guidance. While we're not an agency, we can kind of point them in some directions and say, you know, you have a website and a store. Mm -hmm. That is not a marketing funnel. Um, you need to be able to demonstrate value to the consumer and you need to probably make a landing page. You, you need to do some things to, to get them through the funnel. If that make, does that make sense? Makes sense. Yeah, I'm following. Uh, so another question from the audience here, outside of cannabis related behavior, uh, what else do we know about the audience? What can we learn uh, about the audience from our platform? Sure. So once we've started to build um, an audience and that, that audience could come from having the pixel um, on, on your site or the results of a campaign, we do with our identigraph have the ability to start to append demographic information, right? So devices can be in an anonymous way, in aggregate linked to, you know, specific households or zip codes, which then can bring in demographic information, you know, and we do have some analytics charts that will show things like, this is the rough gender or income of the people that are making purchases um, to better help you refine your, your tactics. Wonderful, wonderful. And switching gears to social media, uh, you know, companies are facing shadow bans through social media. Did you, how do you recommend uh, protecting your canvas brand from getting shadow banned? I mean, it's somewhat related to social media um, or somewhat related to marketing, but any, uh, any insights there on alternatives, you know? Uh, well, be careful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we specifically have built our system to, to avoid the problem that social media has of shadow banning, right? And we see that sometimes with advertisers that come in, uh, maybe on the CBD side or on the cannabis side, and they have creatives or they have campaigns that are designed to be vague, right? Because they don't want to get shadow banned. Um, we don't have that issue um, with what we're doing because all of our publishers know what we're serving. And so we frequently have to say, okay, we want to revise your creative because you're selling CBD or you're selling cannabis. So you need to say that. 
because the other thing you don't want, you know, in between the display of the creative and when the consumer clicks on the ad and they go somewhere, if they didn't understand what it was you were trying to tell them because you were trying to be vague and say it's not really cannabis, it's something else. When they get there, you've got a much lower chance of converting that consumer because they didn't really know what they were doing. Um, so, you know, I, I personally don't have a lot of advice on, on social. We just, our solution was to go completely around the walled gardens of social and Google and Facebook um, and allow cannabis brands to get to the same people, the, the exact same people, but when they're in a different app or when they're on a different site than, you know, Facebook or Instagram. And it's important to know the history of, of social media, right? And, and uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram are part, part of a public company, so they can't promote the a federally illegal substance, right? So that's kind of the first phase. And, you know, you are, you are limited on what you can say. You can't promote the, the sale or use. If you, if, you, if you post a deal or do a product drop and say it's on sale, like, boom, you're going to get banned. Uh, so it's very limited on what you can say with, with uh with social media and that's where you can leverage you know programmatic where you can be explicit with uh your language and images and everything that you say to the audience because the the publishers are well aware that you're advertising cannabis and they're you're not hiding anything you can show the use you can show someone smoking a joint you can say well, there's sometimes you can there's oh, okay, there laws and federal laws in canada that that prevent some of that so the things that we can do from a creative perspective and imagery, like mm-hmm. in Colorado are very different from actually in a weird uh, play of irony, Canada actually has the most restrictive uh, uh, advertising laws, even though it's federally legal, right? Because the federal government has established laws. And um, every, you know, when you're running ads in Canada, you have to be very, very conservative. Uh, there's, yeah. you really can't use much imagery at all. So it is, it is still, we, there's an intersection of the state city municipal laws and then what the publishers will accept and you know some of the more premium publishers when you're working with someone like uh like hearst right or condé nast uh, they do want to understand the domain that you're advertising so there's a little bit more of a high touch uh account management interaction that goes on there because you know we'll get a new advertiser we'll say you know these this is the domain and primarily you know they're very concerned about brand safety so their ad team wants to look at it they want to look at the website that it's leading to and make sure that that is compliant. It has an age gate and it is not, you know, sort of egregious maybe in, in its display. Yeah. Yeah. And then in, in, you know, speaking of, you know, um, Google ads on the paid search side versus programmatic, like what are the differences between the two? What can you show versus not show between the two channels? Yeah. So I, I've outlined pretty, in pretty good detail what we can do on the programmatic side, which is everything inside of the, the state laws, um, we can pretty much do in programmatic and we can advertise cannabis and frequently we can show pictures of flower um, in the ads. Um, I'll actually turn the what you can do with paid search question back onto you because you're more of an expert on that. Um, you know, when you're setting up campaigns or, you know, the search team is setting up those campaigns, uh, what are the common things that advertisers think that they want to do versus where we have to coach them and say, well, you can't exactly do this. Um, you do need yeah. to be a little more vague. Yeah, it's in the first, I guess, first, first of all, as you said, compliance is king, right? So focus on compliance before, before you're launching any campaigns and you can you know, count on 
our ad out team, but also taking, you know, take accountability in house and make sure that your legal team is looking at this first. Uh, and then in regards to Google, you know, um, you know, a lot of it starts with the copy. So you just, you can't use cannabis related terms in the copy and you can't promote the sale of, um, you know, the product within the actual ad copy, uh, nor have that content on the landing page. So you have to be really um, conservative with the language that you use within ads, uh, especially specifically for Google. Uh, so, you know, as far as uh, using display advertising, we can't show the use, we can't show flower, we can't, we cannot show any of that when you're running a Google display ad. Uh, you have to be more lifestyle, right? So you have to be, get more creative on the different ways that you can subtly uh, share your message uh, within the, the compliance limitations of, of Google. Like you can't, we just can't show that. So um, yeah, hope that, hope that helps answer some of the questions here. <laughs> well, and it's getting more strict with Google, right? I mean, in terms of they've, I know they updated their um, like disapproval policy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're not careful, you'll get your account permanently disapproved. Um, and that's something that happened, what, a couple months ago? When, when did that happen? Yeah, I think that was Q4 of last year. So now if you, you're running Google ads and they get disapproved because you're not within the guidelines, you have three chances to really remedy that. And if you, if you don't, uh, kind of meet their expectations on, uh, you know, staying within their their regulations, then they'll just completely shut down your account. So that's a, uh, you know, just like you know, receiving the, uh, you know, the uh, the social media notification that your account's been shut down. It's kind of the same thing if Google Ads, like you log in one day, and if you're not, um, you know, you're not within compliance, then you're going to get that. Hey, you know, you're you're shut down and. Um, you'll no longer be able to use this platform. So definitely move forward with caution when, when running those type of ads. And then moving, transitioning back to programmatic, uh, we talked touched a little bit on how long it takes to see results. Can you give me some examples of like a timeline? Like how long should people wait uh, before they can really make a decision on the success of their campaign? When we start off, we usually set up a campaign on a 90-day flight. Um, okay. And that gives us time to learn. And we'll usually uh, recommend uh, scaling the budget up over time. As I mentioned earlier, each brand is going to connect with a different audience and different publishers mm -hmm. will work better and different regions will work better. So we'll set up campaigns usually with a few different tactics. Uh, we'll set up a prospecting uh, line item, which is something that's going to be sort of a general area. Yeah. Uh, you know, do it in a radius around the location or locations. Uh, we'll do some. We'll make some some educated guesses on on specific audience types that we want. Like I said, the geospatial stuff, or we think that purchasers of this particular type of product, uh, or visitors to these types of venues, um, are going to be likely buyers. And and we're pretty good at that. Although we are always surprised with the data, right? I mean, it's test and learn with this stuff. You you want to cast kind of a wide net, and then and then have some precision tactics as well. Uh, but the wide net will unearth data points that uh, you will be surprised by almost every time. Um, and then we can start to focus things in on those uh, on those specific things that are converting best. Uh, and, and that going back to Steve's question earlier, it's a it's different when you have a established brand versus mm -hmm. a brand new brand. Right. So like 
we are running uh, quite a bit of media for a popular delivery service in California. That delivery service in California has been putting billboards up for a long time, right? So their brand recognition is really strong within the state. So when we start running media for a company like that, that's going to translate to sales really quickly. Um, if you're if you're a brand new company, it's it's going to take weeks, maybe months before you really start to see traction. Wonderful. And as far as ancillary businesses, how can you know how can the advertisers place ads you know for B two B? For example, like a headset or a BDSA. Yeah. So um, B, doing B two B requires a combination of, of using some of the B2B channels. So we work in partnership with uh, companies, you know, like LeafWire, the Canvas Marketing Association um, to, to help um, enable their audiences to advertise to them. Um, and then we do have some amount of things that we can do on the pure programmatic side, right? So we've done, we've gone through the work of, you know, building geoframes around all of the Canvas conferences that happen in the US. And man, there are a lot of Canvas conferences now. I think. The cannabis industry is leading the league in most conferences for the actual size of the industry. <laughs> There's probably one every Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so we can we can uh, build audiences of people that we know are in the industry, uh, and then we can serve ads to them, uh, you know, wherever they may be. Uh, I will say that overall, the B2B campaigns are not going to be as broad a uh, scope in terms of budget as something like most of the consumer work we do. You know, when we're advertising to all of California for delivery you have a, just a much bigger reach that's available. And so you can spend more money, do more advertising. The B2B campaigns uh, by their very nature are gonna be uh, smaller budgets because you're just trying to reach a much smaller, much smaller audience. And can you give me some insight into, you know, scaling a budget for a, let's say a, an MSO for, for one location to 10 locations and what that would look like? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we will frequently, when we start with a, a new uh, an MSO or even a single state that's got multiple locations, uh, we will usually set up the budget and it will be relative to the, the population density in that area. Okay. Um, and we'll usually start with a handful of locations. We'll learn some things. Again, this is a test and learn thing, right? We don't want to just come out of the gate and spend all the money and, and realize we wasted a bunch of it. So um, we'll, we'll pick a, a few locations. We'll start to run media. We'll figure out what is resonating with that particular audience. Um, and then we'll scale it up from there. And so we would usually set a budget per location, figure out what's working and then roll that, roll that out to other locations. And again, it would be, you know, if it's a, s a small rural area, you know, you really only probably can spend a few thousand dollars given, you know, the available audience there. Um, but if you're in, you know, Metro Detroit or LA, you you could you know practically you know spend as much money as you wanted to there's not really a limited reach there yeah and you you brought up a good point like how how are campaigns different when you are in like a rural state versus a rural uh, city versus let's say let's say uh you're in ukiah versus san francisco uh how are the campaign like targeting and, and, and customer targeting, how is that different between the yeah, two? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think anyone on this call other than you and I knows where Ukiah <laughs> is. But um, yeah, so a small small town in California near wine country. Um, one is your budget is gonna be, be smaller. Uh, two is you're likely to have less competition. So there's less conquesting that's going on, um, more brand awareness um, and more um, trying to 
the the overused term canicurious, try to trying to capture new customers, right? Um, that aren't cannabis consumers at all. And then that gets again into the the post-click experience. You know, we've run a lot of campaigns where we, we've run a campaign for essentially the same product in the same area or the same retail service. And, and one of them could have a, uh, you know, a hundred percent better performance than the other. Yeah. And that actually comes down to something that's mostly outside of our control, which is the post-click experience. What yeah. happens when you, when you get someone to click on your ad? And this is another thing that people, uh, if you're not experienced with display advertising to understand is that if you're used to doing things on Facebook and you're selling, you know, dog food to dog lovers, and you've got a very direct correlation there, um, you're going to have a higher CTR. You're going to have a higher level of engagement with display advertising. What, kinda, what's CTR before you do Oh, sorry. You're, yeah, your click-through rate. How many people click on your app? Okay. So um, with display advertising, it's more like you're waving at a lot of different people. And we do do our best to target those waves that you're doing. Um, but when you get someone to wave back at you, that's the click. And then you get a chance to talk to them. Now, if you're trying to advertise to someone who's not a current cannabis consumer, um, you can't just take them from an ad and drop them onto your storefront, right? Because you haven't, you know, if you run a retail operation, you know that the consumer needs to talk to someone. They need to get some level of education about what it is they're looking for. So you usually want to tie your audience that you're targeting to a landing page or a specific experience on the other side of the click. And that is where you see a huge difference in terms of ROI of, you know, driving people again through that funnel. Um, if you just, if you just take someone cold off the street that doesn't know your brand, it doesn't really understand cannabis and you throw them to either a product page or, or just your shopping cart, your chance for success is, is pretty low. Got it. Got it. And then, um, you know, just a reminder, everyone in the audience, you have about 10 more minutes. So if you have any questions, please, please post them in the bottom of the Zoom chat, the Q&A function. Uh, I know in the in the pay-per-click paper advertising, there's some there's some uh, discussions around like fraudulent clicks. Like what do we you know, what do you put in place to uh, to ensure that, the, you know, the efficacy and, and make sure that there is no fraudulent clicks for any of our customers? Yeah, well, I'll start off by saying you're never going to eliminate 100% of the fraud, right? There, there's a it's, a, it's a big ecosystem. There's a lot of money in it, and that attracts bad actors. Um, what we do is we have we have several layers that that we use. We have on a, on our supply side, um, we have a fraud company that works on that and, and eliminates non-human traffic. Um, that is uh, human traffic. Um, on the on the buy side, where where our, we're doing our ad serving, we have a, yet another company that's called IAS that's also looking past the supply side, but on the buy side to eliminate fraud. And then we have um, the last line of defense is actually our human ad ops team, right? So our ad ops team is looking at all of our campaigns on a daily basis and looking for things because new publishers pop up every day, right? It's like whack on it. So you know we'll see things come up and and brand new apps, and some of them are actually fraud. Right. Yeah. Um, and you can usually identify them by, you know, obscenely high click through rates or we'll do things like analyze the number of milliseconds between the display and the click. Obviously, people cannot click on ads in under, you know, 100 milliseconds. Um, yeah. So we do things like that. Uh, but then there's another category of just bad inventory. Right. And so you'll see this more so on the app side of things where someone will launch an app that is a real app like 
but it's a terrible place to advertise. Like my best example is flashlight apps. People are constantly making these flashlight apps and getting them on the app store. And then they show up and you're like, okay, yes, that's an app. Someone's using it, but someone that's using a flashlight on their phone is definitely not looking at your ad. Right. So there, there's, there's a lot to it and it is, it is an arms race and it's, it's something we deal with every day. And then we touched on a little bit up on uh, optimizing campaigns. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a few insight, a few examples on different ways you can optimize campaigns for, for different KPIs? Yeah. So this is a big topic. We could probably talk about this for an hour all by itself, <laughs> but some of the big temple items I, I mentioned, a few of them are looking at specific publishers um, okay. and which ones are converting well. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we've got uh, very different types of content that, that seem to resonate with different brands. So that's, that's one thing that we look at every day is here's, here's a publisher report, which ones are performing well, which ones are not. And then you need to layer in the creative, right? So what does the ad unit look like? What is it saying? Um, and again, we run campaigns where it's the same product in the same market, but, but one creative is clearly better than the other. And again, yeah. that can make your click-through rate, you know, two to 300% different. Um, and, you know, something we, we try to tell people all the time, which is that at the end of the day, marketing is about telling a story, right? Yeah. And you have to tell a story to a consumer. You have to demonstrate value to the consumer. And uh, a lot of people skip that step and they, and they want to just run ads and get people to click. But we can get the ads in front of the right people. But if the story is not there for the consumer, you're going to not, you know, you're going to end up with a really high bounce rate. People yeah. are not going to, they're not going to convert. Got it. And as far as uh, launching a campaign, how much money do you need to start? Um, it, again, it depends a lot on your market, um, but there's definitely a lower threshold with programmatic where we, we would recommend to just not do it at all, right? If you come yeah. in and you, and you say, I want to spend, you know, I want to buy $1,000 worth of ads in my market, that's probably not a good use of $1,000, actually. There, there is a certain level of saturation that you need. You need to, you know, as we mentioned before, a, a consumer needs to see your ad. You, you mentioned seven times. It could be a dozen times. Yeah. Or they'll even think of you as someone that they want to interact with. Yep. That process takes time. Um, and again, also, we like, that's why I set things up over 90 days, right? Which is, you can't just go out and spend $1,000 on ads in one day. And that's just a waste of money. I would actually recommend getting someone like with a sign on the street and like waving it or something else (laughs) um, rather than trying to run a programmatic campaign. Wonderful. We had a question from the audience here is like, how long should you wait before you analyze the the results from the test, from the AB test? Um, Well, that's a good question. We, we don't wait very long ourselves, our ad ops team. And we start to look at stuff within the first week and start to start to make, make tweaks. Um, so in terms of like the lower level tactical optimizations, that's happening pretty much from the beginning. Um, but you do have to wait long enough to see sales happen and mm-hmm. then go back and see what publishers or what creatives are the ones that are driving those sales. Um, because they will be wildly different. I mean, you, you can have one creative that way outperforms others. We ran a campaign for a, a THC CBD product in California and the creative, there were two versions of the creative. One had, you know, a jar of, uh, you know, CBD salve mm-hmm. and just the jar. And the other one had a hand holding the jar. And I don't remember which one it was, but one of them performed, like had double the CTR of the other. I don't even know psychologically why that happened. 
Um, and this is why we say test and learn. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, you, you do need enough time to start to see the sales happening and then work backwards and say, oh, I just realized that like 80% of my sales are coming from people inside of, you know, dating apps versus, you know, weather apps or news versus, you know, uh, gossip. Got it. Got it. And I have another question here. Last, last question from the audience. Um, how does MediaGel differentiate itself from other cannabis programmatic solutions like Surfside, Programmetrics, Philo, and others? Yeah, I touched on that a little bit earlier. Um, you know, we, we take a very hands-on approach to our campaigns. Um, and we're not, we're not trying to just be a media agency that is trying to sell the most impressions as, as we can. Um, we, we focus on how do we get returns for our customers? We take a very active role. Um, you know, you, if you're advertising with us, you have a customer success manager. That's someone that you're talking to on a regular basis. For many of our advertisers, we have shared Slack channels with them. So we have real-time collaboration and things happen in cannabis, right? Like, uh, maybe your Google, my business account gets messed up for some reason, or your store is closed or you're out of, out of product. This happens a lot, right? We're running a campaign for someone it's effective. And then they don't have that product anymore. And we need to be able to respond pretty much in real time to shut that, shut that campaign down, redirect that ad buy. Um, and so that's, that's probably the, the top level thing that I would say. Um, you know, I do think if we, if we brought our, our technology team, they would have their own opinions on, yeah. on why we're better um, at, at the way that we target our ads. Um, but that's broadly speaking, the, the approach we take as, as a company. Wonderful. And, you know, kind of the, the last few minutes here, is there any parting comments or things you'd like to share with the audience before we, before we log off today? Um, I, I'll, I'll again, reemphasize the concept of story, right? Um, we are, we are a channel to help you tell your story to consumers. We are not your storyteller. You are your storyteller. It's, it's your brand. You have to help us tell us what you want to tell consumers. And then when we find those consumers and deliver them to you, you need to have a consistent story. So they, they need to go, because you could have a really cool ad that tells you like all about you know, your founding story, what your ethics are as a company, what, or what your product offering is. But again, if you don't think through the storyline, you ultimately um, probably won't be very successful. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, um, Jake, for sharing all your insights into programmatic. I know we can, we can talk through this talk about this for hours and I'm sure we'll, we'll cover a few other topics um, over the next few months. Uh, just once again, MediaGel, uh, we are focused on connecting cannabis, CBD, alcohol businesses with compliant consumers. And you know, as Jake mentioned with the multi-touch attribution model, we're able to see how all this connects with the consumer during their buying journey. Um, so check us out at MediaGel.com. If you'd like to set up a call to uh, kick off a pilot uh, programmatic campaign, go to mediagel.com and um, just go to our contact form or just uh, email Jake at jake at mediagel.com and we'll kick it off. Great. Thanks, Cameron. All right. Thank Thanks you. Everyone. Thanks, Jake. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.